This summer, I had the rare opportunity actually to go whitewater rafting, um, not once, but twice. And once in Montana and once in Colorado. And the second time in Colorado, I was going with my family. And it's one of those places where you go to the outfitters and you get all decked up and then you hop on this old dusty school bus that probably should be condemned. And you start heading down a, a gravel road. And the guides who are on this, I don't know if you've ever seen like the type of adventure junkie, adrenaline junkie guides that run these types of things. There's a bunch of people up at the front of the bus. And like if there was a, a body piercing to deodorant ratio, we were losing, and, and they're telling all these corny jokes, and then the, the leader, this, he's got like this surfer dude kind of voice, he's like, you guys ever played like two truths and a lie? And we're all like, yeah. And he's like, okay, I got some for you. This is the last two weeks, okay? Um, one, I was bit by a rabid monkey. Two, I was kidnapped by a Thai mafia. And three, I had beers with Jack Nicholson. Where would you go with that? So it turns out the lie is actually the beers with Jack Nicholson. And the rest of the drive, he tells us how last week he was kidnapped by the Thai Mafia in Bangkok and all the ordeals that ensued. But fortunately, he got back in time to take us on our whitewater rafting trip. <laughs> And I remember thinking in that moment, like when I ordered this online and like we planned this all out, like I did not see that part of the adventure coming. <laughs> Do you ever have those moments where like you're going to bed at the end of the day and you're just like, I, I, did not, I did not see that coming. When we start getting into the gospel of John, I realize that as he calls these disciples into life with them, he calls them into a place of expectancy. Not expectations where you get to determine and predict whatever's going to happen next. And you don't always know what Jesus is going to do. You know that he's going to do something, but you don't know what he's going to do. And he expands the horizons of possibilities. And what I want to look at, at you with this morning is a story that I think we think we already know. But what I want to show you within this story is Jesus' invitation for us to enter into a life where we're asking ourselves over and over and over again, I did not see that coming. In fact, if we're living a life of discipleship and we're not asking that over and over and over again, like where did that come from? I did not see that coming. If we're not doing that regularly, I'm not sure we're doing discipleship right. Jesus came to blow apart our expectations. To create worlds of possibilities that we don't even know how to dream. To problem solve on the other side of a resurrection that creates opportunities and horizons in front of us that we could never, ever have predicted or seen coming. It's the story I want to read with you. This is from John, chapter 2. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, 
the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone, who, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. Most of you have heard this passage before, if not all of you. One of the questions I want to ask this text is, why? Why start out the gospel with this story? You ever wonder this? Why is this the first miracle? Like most of the other miracles have a, some sort of demonstration of Jesus' mastery over the storm and the waves and, and the elements of nature. And in other miracles, he's putting people back together again and pushing back the darkness of sin that has taken sight or even taken life. And those all seem pretty obvious. But why start with a miracle of turning water into wine? What a strange story to begin with. One of the commentaries I read by Ben Witherington, he's starting to summarize all the scholastic arguments and debates around this, and it begins with this. The historicity, the historicity of this story has long been debated by scholars, not least because this miracle seems gratuitous. John starts with a gratuitous miracle. What an odd place to start. Why at a wedding? What's going on? Jesus has just invited all of his disciples, and right before this, the verses when Nathaniel gets invited in, and Nathaniel believes in Jesus, and has this amazing moment where he's kind of drawn in, and Nathaniel declares, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. And Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under a fig tree, and you will see even greater things than that. And then he sees water turn into wine. Why? What's the role of wine and its significance? In the classic meal that defined their culture, the Passover meal, there's actually three different distinct glasses of wine that get participated in through the course of that meal. And so maybe there's a hearkening back to, to Passover in this defining moment where Yahweh delivers his people. And so there's something about Jesus showing up as Yahweh in this moment. Or maybe it's because the late prophets and even the intertestamental prophecies started talking about that when, when Yahweh finally comes, there's going to be an overabundance of new wine. And maybe because wine always had its place not only in a wedding ceremony, but in the betrothal ceremony that led to a wedding. You see, if a young man in the Jewish culture would have wanted to marry a bride, he would go and meet with her parents and then would ask for her hand in marriage and they would share a glass of wine together and then he would say, I'm going to go back to my father's house and prepare a place for us and then she'd have to be ready because she wouldn't know when he was going to come back and come get her and then say, I'm taking you to be with me and be with me forever and then she had to be always on guard and kind of ready and waiting for that. And so we find ourselves in, in this wedding ceremony and you see that betrothal that had taken place 
it actually was considered so legitimate that you actually couldn't undo an engagement without going through divorce proceedings in their culture. That's how binding the promise is. And wine is wrapped up in the symbolism of all of this. And then when the wedding actually comes, the party is so big that you invite the whole town. And in fact, everybody hits pause on life for, in fact, days at a time, typically within their culture. In fact, I read that the wedding was the biggest celebration in their culture to, in the small village to such an extent that during the ceremony of a wedding, not even the rabbi was expected to keep the laws of the Torah anymore. Now that's a party. <laughs> when the rabbi cuts loose. And in this scenario, 150 gallons of ceremonial cleaning dishwater gets turned into what would be the modern-day equivalent of about 800 bottles of premium vintage. Gratuitous indeed. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. You ever heard the expression, the devil's in the details? I'm starting to think that sometimes the resurrection is in the details instead. Because it's in all of these stories and the little details and the things you wouldn't read at first glance that actually tell the story of the resurrection and the beauty of the gospel. Jesus takes pots that symbolize the ritual and the washing and all the things you've got to do to make sure you're right with God and takes that and kind of puts it by the wayside and says you're not going to need that anymore because something greater than that has come in this moment. You don't need to clean your hands in order to get right with God and to come into his presence because God has come into your presence and the word has become flesh and it's made its dwelling among us. You're not going to clean yourself up anymore because God in an act of grace is going to do that for you. And there's all kinds of layers going on inside this story. I like this line. Nobody really knows who first came up with it. In reflection on this miracle, the modest water saw its God and blushed. You see, everything changes when Jesus shows up on the scene. The disciples don't even know how wrecked their life is. Jesus is obliterating their expectations. And Jesus and his friends get invited to this celebration. Let's look at some more details and the resurrection they point to. What Jesus did here in Cana and Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. His reflection on this text, N.T. Wright points out two things about signs. Number one is they always point to something beyond themselves. To take this passage and reduce it into some sort of message about whether or not Christians can drink alcohol or not is to miss the entire point of the story. A sign always points to something beyond itself. So here's a hint. The water being turned into wine really isn't about water being turned into wine. It's about a whole lot more than that. So signs always point to something greater. And every sign that Jesus does points to something greater. Wright goes on to point out that each of these signs, what they're pointing to is a moment where heaven is intersecting with earth. Where hurt becomes impregnated with hope. Where the momentary and the eternal collide. And every time Jesus heals somebody, every time he brings somebody back from the dead, every time he casts out a demon, he's offering glimpses. He's punching holes in the darkness as the light is breaking through. And he's giving glimpses of what it looks like when heaven intersects with earth. 
And you see, up until this moment in time, every Jew believed that that only happened at the temple. That's the place where you go to meet God. Even the temple was constructed as a miniature model of the cosmos. It was supposed to be a reflection, and that's where God was. It was this one place where you could go, and you get all ritually cleaned up so you could go in, and with fear and trembling to come and meet God. And then in that space, that was where heaven and earth intersected. But now the word has become flesh and made its dwelling among us. And so heaven meets earth in us and in all of these moments. And no more need for ritual cleansing. You'll never earn your way by keeping the laws. When we couldn't do it and we couldn't get ourselves clean enough, Jesus obliterates the water and just turns it into a celebration. That everything that symbolizes what we had to do to get ourselves right, grace scoffs at. And replaces. And as a result, new horizons of possibilities start to take place. Did you catch how this story started? First four words on the third day. Now I want you to understand how much of a literary genius I think John is in writing this gospel. But I'm also not sure he was very good at math. Because if you go back in chapter 1, verse 29, it says the next day, verse 35, the next day, 43, the next day, and now it says on the third day. Now, I'm no math major, but if you take three next days, then the next day is not the third day, is it? Unless you're trying to tell us something by telling us a story about waters being turned into wine. You see, the third day represents something a whole lot more if you're a follower of Jesus, doesn't it? On the third day, the horizon gets pushed further away. On the third day, impossible becomes impossible. On the third day, you can't write death in a sentence with a period after it anymore for the rest of eternity. On the third day, cancer gets castrated. And on the third day, racism starts backpedaling. And on the third day, hope settles a little deeper into creation that's groaning and longing for its renewal. And on the third day, a stone gets rolled away and pos possibilities begin to exist for those who find life in Christ and in his resurrection that nobody could have ever conceived possible. And so when friends show up to take care of a dead body, they don't expect to find a stone rolled away and that body now more alive than anybody has ever been before. On the third day is the place where we get to live for the rest of time. So when John starts his story being extra terrible at math to tell us that now we're living in the third day, the third day is something different and it's a new reality. There's an overabundance of wine. There's a breaking through of the future into the present. The eternal is meeting the temporal. And we get to live right there. So how do you do that? How do you live in that space as a follower of Jesus and wake up to that every day? Mary's the first to demonstrate her fledgling discipleship in this story, isn't she? Jesus tells her, what does this have to do with us? What is that to you and to me? Literally translated. 
when she tells him we're going to run out of wine. See, this isn't a reflection on Jesus or on Mary. It would have been a reflection on the bridegroom. But already here in an act of grace where Jesus is casting his lot more with every other human being than ever anyone could have imagined possible. In an act of grace, saving the dignity of somebody else at their own party. Mary doesn't know what's going to happen. She just knows Jesus well enough to know that something's probably going to happen. When you woke up this morning, you thought you knew a few different things about the day that lay in front of you. But you didn't know everything. To live a life in Christ means to live with a constant set of expectancy. Not expectations that we get to know the future. We don't. We get to know the one who holds the future. So she doesn't know what's supposed to happen. She just knows that the possibilities are starting to expand because Jesus is here. She walks away from her conversation short with her son and says, just do whatever he tells you. And she writes and concludes this commentary in this passage saying that transformation only came when someone took Mary's words seriously. Do whatever he tells you. Is there a place in your life where you're longing for a transformation? Is there something in your relationships with people around you you want to see changed? Is there a situation you feel relegated to and you just don't see a way out? You see, the possibilities that exist for those who are in Christ Jesus become limitless. And you don't even have to know what's going to happen. You just have to know that something can happen. Friends, we get to be people of possibility because we are people in Christ. And I'm not sure we live as fully as we're supposed to in the reality that today is the third day. To live like you've already won. To live like it's the third day. Where the stone has been rolled away. I think that you think you know what the rest of your day holds. But what if we saw it with newer and fresh eyes? For all the possibilities that exist, not because of my strength or yours. Because of the one who's holding all of that. The one making the impossible possible. The one impregnating your life with hope. The one who's begun the process of finishing all things. And he wants peace for you, his kids. We're leaning forward into that. We're getting there. And we get to tell everybody else the same thing. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for a goodness demonstrated to us that we can't describe in words, do justice to in a message, capture in a picture, or know how to live into well enough. God, we thank you for signs, the ones that you give us that point to something greater, point beyond even themselves. Turning water into wine is pretty cool. But what that's an example of is so much more. And so, Father, for everybody in this room right now who has some part in their life where they're feeling they're bumping up against a ceiling of possibility, a sin that has entangled them for too long, a strained relationship that won't resolve, 
the shortcoming they feel like they can't pass, the past that they feel won't leave them alone, the hurt shared with somebody else who can't seem to escape the moment. Father, break the eternal in. Impregnate that hurt with hope. And show them the life that exists in the third day. When you make everything possible. And we get to feast with you.